Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author and teacher Joe Regenbogen. Joe Regenbogen is a former high school teacher who took up writing late in life. His first two books, Questioning History and Relearning History, were aimed at those who were bored with the traditional teaching of the subject. His next two books, The Boys of Brookdale and Making a Difference, chronicled the heroic lives of the people he interviewed. Long's Peak was his first work of fiction, and now his current work is Dying of the Light on our Ars Metaphysica imprint. When his wife of 40 years passes away, Ethan realizes he has lost the guiding light of his life. He's also haunted by the specter of a decision he made years earlier. During a road trip to the West Coast, Ethan learns about the opportunity to right this wrong and at the same time find the redemption that will enable him to rage against the dying of the light. Welcome, Joe Regenbogen. Great to have you on. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and I do want to get to Dying of the Light probably in the last segment, but let's start with your history teaching because I'm guessing that uh, a lot of that, that career as a teacher ultimately leads to you writing history and leads to you writing other things. So tell us about your career a little bit uh, in a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you could probably well, talk for hours. I could, but uh, yeah, I, I'm from New Orleans originally, so I started teaching in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans. Uh, but I met my wife, my wife in college, and she's from the St. Louis area. So after about five years of living and teaching in New Orleans, we moved up to St. Louis, and I just continued my teaching career up here. Um, the only thing I would add about that is that, and this might be unique amongst teachers, I mean, I love teaching, and I had good, strong relationships with my students. But, you know, when push came to shove, what I enjoyed the most about teaching was the subject matter. I have a passion for history. I have ever since I was a little boy, and my, my my mother used to require that I could do what I wanted every summer, you know, as long as I read an hour a day. And most of what I read, even as a child, was history. Yeah. So that lives on even today. And and so the, the greatest turn on for me in the classroom was if I could get students interested and excited about the subject matter. Well, and starting out in New Orleans, there's certainly a lot of history down in oh, New yeah. Orleans. So you just Absolutely. just go up the Mississippi River a few miles, I guess a couple hundred <laughs> miles, three, four hundred miles to St. Louis. And, you know, the Mississippi River, of course, just a huge part of American lore. Mark Twain and, you know, the whole uh, Vicksburg campaign in the Civil War and um, who knows what else. Uh, I, I know for me, my my journey out to St. Louis, when we met and had dinner the one night, I was out there professionally, but also looking at the Gateway West and thinking about my great uncle who went west for the gold rush, came down the Mississippi and then up to, uh, uh, up into, I guess, into Kansas, uh, western Missouri and Kansas, where he started his wagon train to California. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that pioneer history in the region uh, what about the the history that, that you were exposed to were you most interested in uh as a child it was mostly either world war ii and i still have a passion for that or the civil war 
And uh, later on, the American West, I developed an elective course on the American West. And I guess St. Louis is a prime location for that because it really is a crossroads in some ways. You know, when I make the trip to New Orleans, we're just going down Interstate 55 practically the whole way. And it parallels the Mississippi River. But then, of course, if you want to go west from St. Louis, that's easy enough to do as well. And I've taken road trips with my family. You know, during the summer when I was teaching, we would go out west, and eventually we hit out every state. In fact, I've been in all 50 states. Wow. But it was always the most fun to, to journey out west. I have a few more boxes to check to say the same thing. There's a, several states I still need to get to. But one of the just a real quick thing on when I came out to see you, one of the side trips I made, I don't know if I mentioned it, but I went to the supposed gravesite of Daniel Boone, only to find out that he may or may not have been dug up and reburied in Kentucky. So on my way back, I stopped in Kentucky, where he was, was also a huge monument to Daniel Boone, and supposedly mm-hmm. he's buried there. And of course, reading about it, they think they dug up the wrong person. So... <laughs> Uh, well, if you come back here, it's about a 45-minute drive from where we live is Defiance, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And that's where Daniel Boone spent his final days. And there's a house there you can visit and so on as oh, okay. well. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting that these different states trying to claim his remains and uh, <laughs> just let, let him rest in peace. <laughs> yeah. So questioning history and relearning history, these were books you did before you, you came to Sunbury Press, but – um, I see questioning history, relearning history, and I think, ooh, he's getting controversial here. Is there something about history? Uh, I know we won't go into all the details in this, but just at a high level, what were some of the things that were questioned? Well, question in history is really kind of intended to have a double meaning because every chapter is based on a question. And in terms of the pedagogy, these were essential questions. In other words, uh, questions that are broad, you know, that we could lead to just hours of, of, of discussion. Um, but without teaching about, oh, the Civil War or one of the World Wars, I might raise the question with students about, well, when, if ever, you know, should a nation even go to war? And so each chapter in that book explores one of those essential questions. And then it brings in some of the the details and facts from the past, you know, examples that might be used uh, by multiple sides in answering each question. But uh, it's something that I used a lot in my own classroom when we would would put the students in a circle and they would hold what were called Socratic seminars. Mm. So uh, the Socratic seminar would always be based on one of those essential questions. And in the past, I noticed that a lot of times the students would just say things without having much detail or, or evidence to back up what they were trying to say. So I thought, well, maybe if I could have them read chapters from this book in advance, and I was still teaching at the time when I wrote that, I was teaching part-time, then I would have students read those chapters in advance, and I found that the level of discourse was much higher afterwards. They just knew more about what they were talking about. Yeah, I I value your experience uh, many years as a, as a history teacher, and uh, so important that we keep that discipline on the curriculum, and uh, I'm very concerned about what history we're teaching and how we're teaching it. And we don't have time to go into that totally different subject, but um, yeah, that's why I'm getting a PhD in history to to help make some kind of contribution in that regard. But the first book you did with us was, I thought this was Brookdale and, you know, history biography. I, I thought this was a remarkable concept. You have a nursing home of World War II veterans and the stories that were just in this nursing home um, 
Fantastic. Tell us just a little bit about that idea and how that came about. Yeah, my, my father was, well, I mentioned before I was from New Orleans, and my dad had been living in New Orleans, but he had reached that stage in his life where he needed more family support, and he had outlived many of the other family that might have been able to help him in New Orleans. So we moved him up here to St. Louis, and there is a, a I guess, a, I don't even know if the correct term is nursing homes. These are just senior living facilities. And he was living still independently, but he had an apartment in a, in a place called Brookdale. And there are apparently about a 1,000 Brookdale scattered across the country. I think it's one of the largest of all the senior living facilities. But anyhow, shortly after he had moved in, it was around Veterans Day, and I noticed that they were honoring him and all the other veterans in the building. And my dad was too young to have fought in the Second World War. Uh, he, he was in the military from 1956 to 58. But then I looked all, around the room, and they had all these pictures blown up of all the other veterans. And I realized many of them were older than my dad, and they had fought in the Second World War. And quite frankly, they weren't going to be around too much longer to share their stories. So that's when it hit me that maybe if I could sit down and interview them, maybe to build a chapter around each one of them in terms of the stories that they could share with me, uh, it might make a good book. And on top of that, I was teaching in a program for exceptionally gifted students at the time. So for a little extra credit, I offered the opportunity for students to help me with the interviews. And then I even had them review, you know, the chapter, the rough draft of the chapter afterwards, just to get their feedback. And these were just eighth graders, but uh, they were helpful. And it was a good learning experience for them. And there's a wide range of stories in that book. Some of them are women. One one of them, for example, was a woman named Shifra who had, uh, was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, towards the end, there was someone named Jean who, <laughs> who had frankly become my father's girlfriend at the time. But, you know, <laughs> both of their spouses had, had already passed away. You know, my mom had passed and so had Jean's husband. But Jean's husband had flown in the Pacific during the Second World War. So Jean shared her story, for example, about being, uh, you know, a young bride and, and holding down the fort on the home front, while at the same time her husband was off in the Pacific and uh, a little bit like that story, uh, Unbroken, his plane was also shot down. Now, he wasn't captured by the Japanese. Um, he was rescued a few hours later, but it was still a terrifying experience because I think they were in the water with sharks and so on for several hours. So there was some... And there were other stories, too, that weren't quite as exciting. Not everybody was captured and put in a POW camp, although one of them was. Some of them just did uh, work more on the home front or behind the lines. But they still, each one of them had interesting stories to share and, and just kind of made you feel proud about what they had contributed, you know, during, I guess, what some people call the last good war. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As I think about that, and I think about the thousand Brookdales, if only... We had done uh, a book for each one of those thousand at that time or earlier of these veterans. I'm sure you could have had quite yeah. an encyclopedia of stories. It would have been quite, uh, right. quite, a, quite an endeavor. Of course, an ungodly amount of work as well. Joe, we do have to take our first break. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings the reader unique and independent works of fiction and nonfiction. Oxford Southern is our educational and academic imprint. Check out Shades of Brown by Todd Mealy, Philip Mosley's Telling of the Anthracite, or Wiley McCallan's A Man of Modern Letters, Ernest Hemingway, and The Rise of Modern Literature. Click on the Oxford Southern link for more at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Joe Regenbogen, teacher, author, historian. Joe, uh, 
awesome stuff with uh, the World War II veterans and others involved uh, from that era. Uh, I think the next book up was Making a Difference. This is somebody who really had a big influence on you in your life. And uh, nice, nice biography about a teacher. Maybe, maybe I'm not giving it enough uh, due. T- tell me a little more about that. Sure. Uh, the teacher's name was Earl. Is Earl Solomon? Earl is in his 80s today. He's retired, obviously. But uh, when I was teaching here in St. Louis, and I was in the western suburbs, more affluent. Um, but I was teaching a course called Contemporary Issues, and we used Time Magazine as our textbook. And I had a good group of about 25 juniors who, you know, were nice kids, but it was just hard to light a fire under them to get a discussion going. And then one day uh, we came across a book review called Savage In- uh, a book called Savage Inequalities, which was about the great disparities in, in, in spending in, in public education across the country. So they seemed interested in the book. And the next thing you know, I went out and bought a copy of it. And we read chapter one in class together. It was about East St. Louis High School. And the students got after me about saying, well, we should go see East St. Louis High School. Well, East St. Louis is part of the St. Louis metropolitan area as well. But it's across the river in Illinois, and it's a world unto itself. And I thought it would be a a very good, positive, eye-opening experience to take my students there. But I didn't want to go without a contact. So I looked up in the phone book because he was mentioned in, in the book, Savage Inequalities. There's Earl Solomon, who lived close to where I live, but we just drove in opposite directions every day going to work. And Earl Solomon, I realized as we became friends, because we did these exchanges for a number of years, spent his entire career teaching in one of the worst school districts in the country. He spent 38 years teaching in East St. Louis. So after writing The Boys of Brookdale, where each you know each chapter was a different story, my wife was the one who suggested, well, why don't you focus on just one person and you can go into greater depth that way? And so the entire book called Making a Difference is about Earl Solomon and his entire career teaching almost 40 years and in one of the worst school districts in the country. And to my way of thinking, Earl's a true hero because he's one of those people who may have begun as, you know, I did the same. I began my career in an urban site, but I didn't end up staying there. Uh, Earl did. He went in there and he stayed and he made a difference. Wow. Well, Earl, now you mentioned he's in, is it Jonathan Kozel who did Savage Inequalities? Yes, correct. Very good. Oh, I, yeah, that's just a memory <laughs> it burned in my brain from some years ago. I knew somebody who was doing uh, a PhD in education, and I remember that book coming up at the time. Very uh, controversial. But it, Earl was mentioned in that? Or was he prominently in that, or just uh, just one of yeah. many? Chapter one in that book is about East St. Louis, and yes, he's got a couple a couple pages in there. But when they mentioned that he was a history teacher, I thought, well, he would be the most natural person for me to try to reach out to. And uh, and then we had a, built a friendship that lasted, you know, for a number of years while we were both still teaching. Earl retired a few years before I did, of course, but afterwards, you know, he he still lives about a mile away from where I do. Yeah. So it was pretty simple just to go over to his house, or sometimes he'd come over here, and we would sit in our dens, and uh, I would I would interview him and take notes, and then you know put together a chapter, and then go over the rough draft with him just to be sure that it was factually correct, and uh, that's how that book came about. Well, I, as we're talking about it, I'm thinking you know it was probably time to reintroduce that because uh, you know with all the imprints and things we've added, and you know, getting more into education, I, there might be some. Some more market for that, some more runway. So 
Um, yeah. Definitely want to bring that back back into uh, focus as well. Now, we'll talk about your fiction um, here. we got about half the interview to go. Uh, I know a little while back uh, you had Long's Peak, and we published that. Tell us about the transition to writing fiction, and what was Long's Peak about? About it, I know we had a conversation. You may have had some experience, too. Um, but I just found that in some ways it's a very different experience when you have the freedom. It's almost liberating to be able to create your story rather than being bound to somebody else's story. Um, and there's trade-offs. You know, there are advantages to both approaches. And, and I'm not saying that I'm, I'm done writing nonfiction. I could very well go back to doing that. In fact, I'm thinking about doing that with my next project. But um, for the time being, you know, trying to write fiction, I just thought was a more personal experience. People have often asked, well, you know, is the major character me or how much is the major character myself? You know, in Long's Peak, we're talking about a history teacher, a high school history teacher. Now, there's vast differences. He's going through a crisis I never experienced in this book. But he ends up, the climatic scene is on top of Long's Peak, which is, you know, one of the biggest mountains. uh, It is the tallest mountain in the northern Rockies. You know, it's one of the 54 mountains in Colorado that rises up over 14,000 feet. And I did make that climb in my younger days. So, you know, you tend to write what you know about, and that's that's kind of what I was doing. But uh, so there's a little piece of me in there, but there's all invent. I think just it's fiction. You know, obviously, I was able to invent and create and put together a story about a man who was trying to piece together his life and uh, is able to do so on a summer trip to Colorado where he's with a, a friend. And, and, and then, like I said, the climatic scene where he's able to achieve some kind of closure on what had happened earlier in his life, he's able to reach that on top of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds uh, very interesting. Have, what's the feedback you've gotten on that? Have you had some, some reviews? Some... Yeah, well, uh, mostly in, in, in here in St. Louis. Uh, I, I frequently get into the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I'm an avid reader of, of our newspaper here. You know, I write letters to the editor, and for the past couple of years, I've been submitting op-ed pieces. In fact, I have one that was printed earlier today on uh, the historic history behind uh, America's immigration policies. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Post-Dispatch has also reviewed uh, three of the books, including Longspeak, and they've all been fairly positive reviews. Um, Partly because, of course, you know, some, if not all, of the stories are set in St. Louis. Right. So I guess they feel like there's probably going to be an appeal to to local readers. We are going to take a break. We'll be right back. We're talking to Joe Regenbogen. Sunbury Press Books is the home of independent authors and thinkers. Radio Free Press is our imprint for politics and social issues. Check out authors such as Pat LaMarche, author of Still Left Out in America, The State of Homelessness in the United States. Wingnuts, a field guide to everyday extremism in America by David Michael Slater. And A Year of Change and Consequences by Mark Single. Find out more by clicking the Books tab at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Joe Regenbogen, and we're talking about his recent release, Dying of the Light, on the Ars Metaphysica imprint of Sunbury Press. So, so Joe, a little bit different path now. Still fiction, but uh, now we're getting into metaphysics and uh, some paranormal things and some legal things, and it's a thriller. And Anyway, give, give us a sense of, of what we have going on here. 
Okay. Well, this one is probably the deepest and most personal thing I've written, maybe that I ever will write. And uh, yeah, I, I think there's this probably the confluence of two different forces here. One is just aging. I, I mean, I'm getting ready to turn 67. I think most people, most readers out there that uh, you know are, are my age or give or take a few years might I might be able to relate to this. You start thinking about your own mortality. And no matter what you think about in terms of religion or your belief in an afterlife, you know, by now, I think at this stage in life, you've probably reached some conclusions. And, and I'm no different in that regard. So some of that does come out in this book. But the more immediate part, the second part, is is the fact that I, I have been very lucky and blessed to be married to a wonderful woman. We're getting ready to celebrate our 45th anniversary. I was only 22 when we married, and my wife was only 19 at the time. Um, and fine. But the thoughts crossed my mind uh, at times about what, what would it be like if I were to lose my wife? Mm-hmm. And so that was the premise where Dying of the Light begins, because... The main character, Ethan Marshall, has also been married for 40-plus years. He's an attorney in the story, but he's also just lost, he has just lost his wife. And so I, and I don't want to give away too much of the book. I, I, you know, I don't want to put any spoilers in there, but you, you learn at the end of the first chapter that Ethan attempts suicide, and obviously it doesn't work. But I could fully understand why I think in your deepest despair that might be a viable option. Not the right option, not, not a good option. So then the question becomes, well, then how do you sort of rebuild a life if you no longer have that person that was your guiding light for 40 plus years? And that's kind of what Dying of the Light is about. Uh, yeah, there's there's a plot in there, obviously. You're, he takes a journey out west to visit his son, Noah, who's living in the Oregon area. Uh, and while there, he learns about an opportunity to come back and not only deal with a legal issue, but to maybe rectify a mistake that he made as a, as a younger man in his life. And so uh, by the end, he's able, I think, to piece together, you know, how he can effectively live the rest of his life, even without his beloved Sarah. Yeah, yeah that's, could not imagine that. And uh, I have not been married 40 years, wish I, wish I was, <laughs> with, uh, with Tammy. But uh, we didn't meet till only like 13, 16 years ago. So married yeah. about 13. But yeah, I hear you. Um, you know, what? what is interesting about this novel, those of you who might want to pick it up and read it, you know, it does have that, that spiritual component to it, that mystery of life. Um, you know, what is life all about? It gives you some very compelling things to think about for sure. And is not a preachy... Uh, any particular religion uh, related to it. It's just more of what you've just said, Joe, was thinking about where you're at in life and where you're going and what happens next, if anything. So let's hope there is something wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, what a bummer. (laughs) But uh, uh, tell us to, uh, you know, you, you did give us a hint to some other projects you're working on. Um, or might be thinking about. Um, maybe you could tease us a little bit with some thoughts of what might be next. Uh, I fully support you coming back to writing some history, but you know you got to go where the passion is. Well, I've been working on. It's a work of fiction, but this one definitely involves much more history. So there's sort of a combination between the two, and some of it is fictional and some of it is not. Uh, right now, I've got as a working title. Uh, the Scent of Violets, which comes from a Mark Twain quote, 
Uh, it has to do with the, the one of the themes of the book, which is about forgiveness. But the premise of the book is about uh, a couple that meet in the Second World War uh, death camp in Poland. You know, during the Second World War, the final solution involves six major killing centers in Poland. Auschwitz-Birkenau was just the biggest and most famous. But Sobibor is rather infamous because it's the place where there was actually a, a, a mass escape. And so I did some prison camp, fell in love, managed to escape, and they both survived. Now, their story, they ended up moving to Palestine and, you know, became citizens of Israel. Uh, in my story, I have them moving to Skokie, which is also, it's a suburb of Chicago, mm-hmm. but it's a uh, you know, it's it's a site. It's uh, there are more Holocaust survivors in Skokie than any place else in the United States, and so I take their story and then I introduce fictional characters. Uh, this is we move it up to the 1970s, where there's a, there's a rise of a neo-Nazi movement and on the south side of Chicago. Uh, I don't know if you remember uh, Lawrence about Frank Collin and and how Skokie became the subject of a major Supreme Court case in the late 1970s because the Nazis wanted to march with their uniforms and their swastika armbands in Skokie, hmm. and Skokie had passed an ordinance to keep them out. So the ACLU, with, with Jewish attorneys representing Nazis, went all the way to the Supreme Court and won that right, although the Nazis never actually chose to march. So Frank Collin has an entire chapter in the book as well. But at the heart of it, it's is the story about a young boy, he's only 17 when he does this, who comes under the sway, the influence of the Nazis, and decides that he wants to do something about this Holocaust couple, the ones that had escaped from Sobobor living in, in, in town. And he's going to build his own bomb. And I don't want to say much more in case this becomes a book. <laughs> um, but it's... it's, it's uh, it's a disturbing book. It goes. Yeah. It becomes much darker than anything I've written before, but I think the the intent is to take something from the past, connect it with more contemporary issues. I, I began this book before last October seventh, before the big issue about Israel and the Gaza, mm-hmm. and everything that I'm sure people are aware of. But it certainly has brought the subject of anti-Semitism, not to mention, of course, people's feelings about what Israel's doing in the Gaza right now as well. All that's become front-page news almost every day. So in some ways, it's made this project I'm working on even more relevant. But that's one of the things I'm working on. I'm also considering, I haven't started this yet, but another book that would maybe be of use to teachers of American history. Um, not the same as the first two I wrote years ago, but something else where where it might just enable history teachers to engage students more in critical thinking and higher level thinking and and just sort of deepen their understanding of the past. So I'm getting older in years, but I'm not looking to stop writing. I just a year or so ago finally broke down and purchased a laptop computer. So now I'm even more comfortable <laughs> as I do my writing. Uh oh, look uh, out! <laughs> I'm still going strong. That's great. That's great. Yeah, we we definitely want you to keep writing, and uh, you know, I just want to close with a couple thoughts. Um, I might be coming out that way at some point. There's two projects that I've been uh, contemplating. One is one is on the Civil War, and I'll reach out to you about that. There's some f- people buried there in the St. Louis area and lived around St. Louis uh, related to the war. But the other thing, that, the other interesting story I don't think anybody's ever covered are the St. Louis Terriers of the Federal League. And uh, Eddie Plank pitched for them one year, so I did the Eddie Plank biography. 
and found out about the St. Louis Terriers, and they ended up just missing winning the Federal League Championship by percentage points because they wouldn't play a tiebreaker game against the number two team <laughs> or the other team that they were tied okay. with. But I don't know if anybody out your way talks about the Terriers anymore, but they were pretty good back in like 1915. So um, huh. there, there's, a, there's a history there of local baseball, uh, Major League Baseball, that uh, is kind of uh, very obscure, and I'm, I'm interested in it. So, Joe, it's been oh, great. Yeah, go ahead. I hope you make it back and and uh, be happy to play host this time. And, and and there's all kinds of places we could go out to see. Uh, you know, Ulysses Grant once had a home here. Yes, and Grant's Farm would be a place to see. Jefferson Barracks would be a good place to take you to see as well. Awesome. In terms of cemeteries and so on. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to play host and have you come back to St. Louis whenever you can make it. Yeah, yeah. I have a stop in Vicksburg too. I want to do so not not too far from there as well. But yes. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Joe, it's been great talking to you. Same here. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.